Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. This actually sounds like a really good deal for you guys. Uh, this is Stick to Wrestling. We talk about wrestling mostly from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're going to be all over the place today because we're doing a mailbag episode. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook page if you're not already part of it. Uh, a lot of cool wrestling talk, a lot of cool, you know, hey, if, if you were part of the group, you got to submit a question today, hopefully, if you got it in on time. Uh, we talk wrestling results, we have wrestling pictures, a lot of talk about uh, Florida State getting left out of the playoffs, so we don't always just stick to wrestling. It's a good time, give it a shot. And with that, yes, mailbag episode, I want to bring on a guy who's been on, I want to say this is his fourth time on Stick to Wrestling, always a great guest. Steve Crawford. Steve, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I always love being on Stick to Wrestling, and thanks thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure to do this. No, it's always a pleasure to have you, man. And, it's, and Steve kind of came on. I actually invited him today to be part of Stick to Wrestling. We are throwing some stuff around. We were The original plan was to do a Starcade 88 episode today, and both Lou and I are short on time, so we're going to uh, record that episode, and we're going to have, I believe it'll be the next episode. Yes. Uh, and unless something goes wrong. Um, so, yeah, Steve, I'll tell you what. Um, normally, I let the first the uh, our guest do the first question, but I want to throw out a, a couple of ones earlier. Uh, first, Rose Harmon says, these are always my favorite episodes. They're my favorite episodes, too, Rose. Um, Rose, would, Rose would hate it up here uh, in New England, Steve, because everyone would call her Rose Harmon. <laughs> and they won't they won't stop she could say hey don't and they'd be like no this is how we talk but anyway yeah, i yeah. love doing these episodes because i don't have to watch anything i don't have to research anything i can just talk wrestling it's fun justin brown asks in the tape trading days i got a ton of tape t- trading questions on today i don't know why but i'll answer this one does any one customer stand out as particularly obnoxious or any one quest request particularly annoying. I just wanted to share the story. I think it's kind of funny. Back in the mid-late 80s, early 90s, I would send out a physical tape list a with an update. I think it was every month or every two months. And I had my phone number on it, right? And I would occasionally get a call from someone who just wants to shoot the dog, chew the dog about wrestling, right? Now, you know I was going to say shoot, and I didn't want to say that. <laughs> And one night on a Saturday night, I want to say like 9, 930, I get a phone call. Now, you're all wondering, okay, this was, a, this was 1990. John, you're 24 years old. What are you doing home 9 o'clock on a Saturday? My friends are over, and we're watching the NCAA uh, basketball tournament. We're watching the Final Four. And so the phone rings. I pick it up, and it's this guy. For, I forget his name, but I talked to him a couple of times. He was fine. And I'm like, hey, can you call me back tomorrow, Monday, whatever? Uh, I have people over. We're watching the game. And he keeps going. Like, I didn't just say something, right? So then I say again, hey, you know, I've got company over. I don't want to be rude. You know, can you just give me a call back tomorrow or Monday? 
And once again, he just keeps going. I'm like, what? I'm like, so this time a little more pointedly, I'm like, hey, I have people over. I don't want to be rude. Give me a call back tomorrow. And he's like, uh, oh, well, uh, I wanted to talk about maybe getting two or three custom tapes from you. And, you know, Ooh, two or three <laughs> big business. Yeah. I'm like, you know, it was the most disingenuous kind of I'm going I'm dangling money in front of your face now, you know, be rude and, and ditch your friends and talk to me on the phone. I'm like, you know, same thing. Dude, just call me tomorrow. OK, have a good one. Bye. Click. I don't think I ever heard from him again, but it was just like what? It was the first time in my life, Steve, that. I felt like I understood what it was like for a famous person to just be like, hey, my time is not your time right now. Knock it off. And I, So that's my one story, Steve. Was that Tony Khan? Was that who it was? <laughs> it was not Tony <laughs> Khan, but Tony, apparently, I remember him, but apparently he knows me. I'd love to have him on the show sometime. I, I guess he used to do uh, HTML for my uh, wrestling list. I remember him now, but I didn't remember knowing him coming in, but he was a big Illinois football fan. Uh, very interesting. All right. Okay. Well, pick a question, Steve. Go ahead. Okay. This is from Greg Sirota. And he said, what are your memories of Super Clash 3? And the first thing I think of when I think of Super Clash 3 is just that vast emptiness inside the UIC Pavilion in Chicago. <laughs> I think... That me and you could have gotten 20, you know, stick to wrestling fans together. We could have had a great water balloon fight yeah. and, and nobody would have complained because we wouldn't have gotten anybody wet. No. I mean, you, you want to talk about a bomb scare crowd. There was just almost nobody in that audience. It, it, it's really true. Uh, my Super Clash 3 memory was number one. I decided to impulse buy it the night of the show, but no, my local cable company was not carrying it. And number two, th th this is a compliment. They put this show together like three months before it actually happened. And not one single wrestler who was being advertised in September or October did not show up. And 1988, it was kind of a tumultuous time in wrestling. And, you know, guys are signing with the WWF left and right. You know, WCW needed guys. And everyone appeared as scheduled. So I, I give them credit. It wasn't a great show, but considering that it was, you know, guys from Memphis and the dying or the what was left of the AWA, it wasn't a bad show at all. And I also remember hearing that uh, Kerry showing up at the, at the building, you know, thinking, he's going to be the unified champion. Like they never told Carrie, Hey, you're the one doing the job. <laughs> yeah. There's some other things was, you know, it was hysterical after Greg Gagne's match where he's just getting booed all the way to Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he has no idea how to react to that. Like he's never been booed before. And that wasn't the plan. And that wasn't the plan that night. So that was pretty funny. Greg Gagne getting booed in Chicago. That is pretty funny. And yeah, you know, the, the business was changing quickly 35 years ago. And yeah, Greg, your, your act isn't getting over anymore, even in the Midwest. And, and the interesting, I mean, you could tell Kerry had cut his arm before the match started. Yes. I mean, he's, he's got the robe on. He's looking at his arm. You knew immediately he had cut himself. And then the other thing that was really interesting was was the drama where the WWF tried to kill the pay-per-view. Yes. 
by saying, oh, Kerry, he's he's lost a limb. He can't be in a wrestling match in the state of Illinois. That's against your commission rules. That was against the commission rules. If, if you had a prosthetic limb, you could not compete in boxing or wrestling. And the WWF tried to, you know, uh, monkey wrench their pay-per-view, you know, which was kind of, I mean, it's just what the WWF does. It was completely lame. Right, right. Oh, do you remember the uh, State Athletic Commission? The referee had to wear this giant placard uh, with the state outline of the state of Illinois on it. That's probably been my best uh, memory from Super Clash. It's like, you know, the the Illinois State Athletic Commission pushing these guys around to that extent. Oh, goodness. You know, it just... The, the buildup to the thing, you just didn't see this being a success the way, you know, they promoted it. You're right. I mean, everybody was there, but the problem was, you know, who was there? <laughs> so, uh, and it just, it just made them look so minor league. It's like, we're going to do this pay-per-view or we're, we're, we're going to, you know, bring all these guys from the AWA and Memphis and Dallas, and, and we're going to look big time. And it just looked terrible. It, it definitely looked minor league and the, and, it's been pointed out too, like, you know, you would think they would do, you know, good buy rates specifically in Dallas, thanks to Kerry Von Erich, and Memphis, thanks to Jerry Lawler. But each city had already had multiple Kerry versus Lawler matches. And when I say multiple, I don't know how many Dallas had, but Memphis had, I, I want to say six. And that doesn't even include like tag team matches. Right. And, and really, you know, you could have had that same show any Monday night in Memphis and drawn five times as many people as they did in Chicago. That's a good point. It was just a reflection of of how dead the AWA was at that point, and, and there was just no fan base for that product. No, none whatsoever. Um, I mean, that was really the last gasp for the AWA. I Aside from the uh, championship challenge series or whatever it was, I don't remember a thing about the AWA after Super Clash. Like, I remember Zabisco was the champion, and they brought in, like, Harley Race and Nikita Koloff. Like, that's it. That's all I remember about it. Yeah, it was it was like attending a very long funeral watching last year or two of the AWA. It, it really was. And they had those uh, TV tapings that were uh, in an empty arena for security purposes. <laughs> yeah. I guess they had the same thing in Super Clash 3. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like moving the uh, Sergeant Slaughter uh, match from the Los Angeles Coliseum for security reasons at WrestleMania. <laughs> right? That was great. Uh, anyway, Jason Arsenio D'Amato asks, "What kind of blackmail photos did Baby Doll and Larry Zbysko have on Dusty?" Steve, do you know about this? Yeah, uh, obviously that was an angle that they were working that got dropped. That Baby Doll has these blackmail pictures, and she shows them once to Dusty, and he looks disgusted and walks away. And there was never any resolution to what that was. I, I'm assuming there was just sheep involved in these pictures, and maybe a fence, and maybe Dusty trying to help a sheep over a fence in some <laughs> way. Uh, but I, I, I don't know what was in the actual contents of that folder. That's that's my best guess. Well, Dusty came out one day and says, don't you worry about those pitches, baby. It ain't nothing to see in those pictures. Like, way to kill an angle dead, right? But yeah. the photos, here's the big reveal coming up, because I know what the photos were supposed to be. And I know how the angle was supposed to play out. And this is so 1988. I, I feel ridiculous even saying this. But the photos were supposed to be Dusty in bed 
with a black woman. Woo! Yeah. And <laughs> the idea was that the angle was going to blow up in baby doll's face because, oh my, this still make this means Dusty is still cool and relevant. And the announcers were going to push it that way. And baby doll was going to get all disgusted that people didn't turn on Dusty on this. And it was going to put him over with everyone, especially the, the black community. That was the angle. Okay. Was he wearing polka dots in the pictures? Not yet. I don't, I don't think he was wearing anything in the pictures. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, the, the polka dots didn't happen until 1990. But yeah, they were going to have it was going to be Dusty in bed with a black woman. And like I said, the idea was that it was going to they were going to steer the fans so that it uh, blew up in Baby Doll's face. And they just never went through with it. And now you know why it was a dumb angle. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. That's anytime they dealt with racial issues in the in, in the 80s, it was just so cringy. It just uh, it it was like everybody was. 20, 30 years behind the times when they were doing wrestling angles. You know, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you know what, Dusty? I think you're the guy who should be doing race angles that brings us all together. I said that with complete <laughs> sarcasm. My God. All right. All right. What do you got? What, what do you have for a question, Steve? Okay. We have Dominique Violi who asked, do you feel Smoky Mountain would have done better if they were in the mid-Atlantic area? Or because all of the indie promotions that struck up the last few years, that area was scorched earth. Actually, Cornette wanted to be in Charlotte. That was a city that he wanted to be one of his major hubs in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But the problem was he couldn't get good television there. And that was just the kind of the challenge for him everywhere. Wrestling was in a down period of time. It wasn't considered hot. And TV stations weren't really looking for another wrestling program, especially, you know, a local program at that point in time. And, and a lot of those stations were just selling airtime for infomercials. Exactly. That's the big one. And they could make more money doing that than, than promoting a wrestling tape. Uh, They did go to Charlotte a couple of times in 1995. The, the attendance was just terrible for those shows. Uh, So it's, it's one of those things when, when, you know, Cornette was looking at his map and planning his territory he definitely wanted Charlotte to be a major part of it. He felt like that entire that Mid Atlantic region had been kind of abandoned by WCW, and he felt like he, you know, there was business that could be done there. But television ultimately drives these things, and he just couldn't get the television that he needed. Yeah, the analogy that someone not Jim Cornette who was promoting uh, told me it's like, okay, you know, are you going to play a tape of my wrestling promotion, or are you going to play a tape of an infomercial that shows up with a check? You know, play this and cash it. Exactly. I mean, it was, you know, and Vince McMahon had the business model where he was paying people to have his program put on television when he started National Expansion. You know. Cornette didn't have that sort of luxury, and he was trying to run a regional territory, not a national territory. Yeah, my understanding is that they wanted to start in Knoxville because that had been completely abandoned. And, you know, like Dominic said, Knoxville had not been scorched earth. I think Smoky Mountain was good enough, especially in the beginning and the middle where, you know, I agree that the Carolinas kind of were scorched earth as far as, you know, indies go and, and you know, WCW had, had 
burn the territory down with you know their bad shows and bad finishes, etc. But I think I thought Smoky Mountain at one point was good enough where fans would be like, okay, this is good wrestling. I'll come out and see it. Like fans meaning in Virginia, the Carolinas, etc. Well, and and you know you still had the Rock and Roll Express, you still had Jim Cornette, you still had people that had had made a lot of money in the Carolinas, and you know the, it it wasn't nostalgia yet for people. But I mean, it seems like if they would have had a, a good television product, good good channel, you know, it seems like it could have worked. It could have been one of the things that I was most wrong about in my almost 50 years as a wrestling fan when I heard, I heard Smoky Mountain Wrestling was starting and then they went a few months and then they brought Ricky Morton in to team with Robert Gibson and they were going to you know bring back together the Rock and Roll Express and I was like, oh my God, those guys are so acid washed they're done if you give if you push these guys you know you might lose the promotion over it and man was i wrong the rock and roll express were over like crazy and they could still work yeah and and again it's um you know it's kind of the difference between the smart fan and the casual fan i mean i as good a team as the rock and roll express were i never liked that tag team at all because <laughs> i i like the heels i just i didn't care for the rock and roll express I realized they were good at what they did, but I just didn't want to see them. We've all got a guy like that. Right, right. The casual fans absolutely love them. And, uh, the, you know, the people that were, uh, you know, they were buying more tickets than I were. And, and that was the people that mattered. So sometimes, you know, you can cater to the smart audience a little too much and 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 not really get where the money is. Well, at, at the same time, the Rock and Roll Express started getting booed heavily in 1987 after they released, you know, after they brought out the Rock and Roll Express fan club and they had that Ricky Morton uh, song that he sung, Boogie Woogie Dance Hall. It's just awful. And a lot of the fans, especially the male fans, turned on the Rock and Roll Express. Then they broke up, I want to say in 88, and they brought them back in 1990. And they were effective as mid-carters, but you could tell like their glory days were over. And like I said, I was wrong because, you know, the people in, you know, Johnson City or wherever, the Smoky Mountain Territory, the Rock and Roll Express were red hot until the day Ricky quit. Right. And, you know, they had the perfect foil there with Cornette and the Heavenly Bodies. So it was just the chemistry always worked there. And, and they, you know, had all grown up working in a lot of the smaller towns and in Tennessee territories, they understood those towns, they understood those audiences. And so it, it just worked in terms of these guys knew how to be main event stars on that particular stage. Exactly. Ricky, you know, Ricky and Robert, you know, growing up in the Memphis territory, working there for so many years, they knew what was up. They knew it was their job to get you in, into the building, buying a ticket and not, you know, selling your action figure somewhere. God knows where. Right. But uh, they, they sold a lot of merch, too. So they were smart about that. Yeah. And Smoky Mountain was smart. The baby faces had to share their merch money with the heels because, you know, the everyone can't be a baby face but anyway thomas bain asks what if usa canceled raw after the pillman austin home invasion angle they would have found a landing spot but would the gap in television ultimately have ended the monday night war do you have any thoughts on this steve well i mean 
Vince obviously knew that television was the driver for his product. And, and like Thomas said, he, he would have landed on his feet. He would have found something. We don't know that that something would have been on Monday night though. So, so it's possible that, you know, he's got his raw that's, you know, on a Wednesday night or Thursday night or who knows. Um, but the, the thing about it in the long run is Vince McMahon is the smartest promoter that's ever been in professional wrestling. And WCW was going to self-destruct. Vince didn't really have to do anything but sit back and watch them self-destruct. <laughs> so all he had to do was survive the downtime, and then the good times came in. So, yeah, would it have ended the Monday Night Wars? It's possible. You know, it, it was a long time after that um, Austin Pillman angle that, you know, WCW was beating them all through 1997, most of 1998. So, well, it was, I think, about April 1988 that Raw started beating Nitro in the ratings. So so quite a long time there. But in the end, Vince was going to win that because he was smarter than the competition. You know, I, I don't think it was inevitable that WCW would fold. I figure, you know, it would be like the WWF today. Uh, you know, Vince is really no longer in charge of day-to-day. Uh, Hall of Ake is no longer really in charge. I thought it would just, you know, turn into this corporate thing that would always be sort of protected. And, I mean, they were just so outrageously mismanaged is what happened. And And you're right. Maybe that was inevitable. Now, I have never heard that USA uh, that the WWF got heat from USA Network for doing that angle. Now, it might it, they might have just I haven't heard about it, but it it felt like the WWF went in more and more of a risque manner. Like they didn't hold back after doing that angle; they just got crazier and crazier. T- were, were, Steve, were you watching that as it aired? Yeah, I did watch it as it aired and you know, it was it was very different from something on a wrestling show. Oh yeah. Yeah, about a domestic violence situation, so you can see where you know, there you know, it, it it's almost like an act of desperation in a way. Like, you know, things things we're getting beat so badly, what can we do and and you do this almost hot shotting type angle. Um but in terms of, you know, if they would have got canceled and I never heard they were in trouble either. You know, people would have found wrestling. It's like, you know, football. If you want to watch a football game, you're going to find the game. You don't care what station it's on. Yeah. You're not going to say, well, I, it was on Fox last week and it's not this week, so I can't find it. You're going to right. say, no, on ABC or ESPN or wherever. And, and it's the same with wrestling. If you're a wrestling fan, you're going to find the product. Uh, so I don't think moving cable channels would have meant a whole lot in the long run. It, it didn't when they moved to Spike TV. I mean, I look at it that way. Right. Yeah, everyone was able to find it. I, I and once again, you know, I don't think USA was talking about canceling Raw at any time. But right around this time, they were talking about moving Raw from nine o'clock to eleven o'clock, which I think would have been just a brutal bro blow to the WWF. And it was it was over ratings. It wasn't over the content. Yeah, that would have been very tough because the, the viewing the, the viewing audience would have shifted dramatically and there would have been a lot less eyes on that product at that time. Yeah, and you could say, you know, well, everyone has a VCR and you can record it, but, you know, there goes your casual viewership, which is a lot of your viewership. It's like, okay, I'm going to bed. No, I'm not going to bother recording this. No, and, and you know, it's a two-hour show, right? So it's a, it's a major time investment as it is. It's it's one thing if it's in prime time because you're used to 
watching those things in prime time. But if it starts pushing in late in the evening, yeah, people are just going to say, well, if it's not important enough for them to put it when, you know, I can see it, it's not important enough for me to watch it. Right. If you have someone just, you know, flipping through the channels, oh, wrestling's on. And I don't know what percentage of your viewership is that, but, you know, it, it's probably significant. And that audience is gone. All right. Your turn, Steve. Pick a question. Okay. Uh, I, I hope I don't say this gentleman's name too incorrectly. Uh, Nick Coliatis, who was one wrestler, baby face or heel, who for you embodied the old Johnny Valentine saying, I can't make them believe that wrestling is real, but I can make them believe that I'm real. And uh, my, my answer on that was Ronnie Garvin, because when Ronnie Garvin laid in those chops, you felt like it was reverberating through your screen. <laughs> and those, th- those things legitimately hurt. And, you know, he's talked about, you know, Flair having just blood welts all over his chest from his matches. And Ronnie didn't do silly stuff in the ring. You know, he didn't do anything. Uh, the Garvin that, stomp. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we but, love you, know, you Ronnie, but the Garvin stomp was silly. He, he didn't do a face bump. <laughs> you know, he didn't, yeah. he didn't walk, take three steps to the ref and fall on his face. But uh, yeah, Garvin for me was, was somebody that looked like a legitimate guy that could tie you up in knots and hurt you if he wanted to. How did Ric Flair every night and sometimes twice on the weekend endure that punishment from Ronnie Garvin. You're right. Those slaps were incredible. I mean, you know, they just, it sounded like a gun going off on your television screen. And it's one thing, okay, I did this once on TV with Ronnie Garvin, ouch. And another thing, like I had to do it eight times this week. Yeah. I mean, Garvin has said that Flair was like putting Vaseline on his chest after the matches every night, but he said Flair never complained and he was laying them in there. So that's one of those reasons those matches are so memorable. They, they really were. And like I said, you know, I mean, power to Ric Flair. I mean, he's, he's done it, you know, already 20 nights in a row and he's getting in there to take that again on the 21st. My answer, Dr. Nick, I would say Bruno Sammartino and, and I'm not saying, you know, I thought Bruno was real. I, I never really thought any of it was real. But Bruno seemed very real and very authentic as far as, you know, who he was and how he carried himself as a champion. So, yeah, my, my ult- answer ultimately is Bruno Sammartino. Greg Savarisi says, happy 50th anniversary to Stan Stasiak. Is there a WWF champion who got less of a rub? I realize he's the shortest reigning transitional champion of the era, but five years after beating Pedro Morales, he's in tag teams with jobbers. Why would they treat a former champion this way? Uh, I'm glad. You know what? I mean, I, I want to answer this question. When Stan Stasiak first returned to the WWF in 1976, I mean, man, did he have the sheen of being a former world champion. And they did not ever mention, oh, it was only nine days. Like, no, he is the man who Pedro Morales defeated. And you would think he was headlining Madison Square Garden every, every month for a significant period of time. And when they brought him back, like I said, he was a, a major draw in 76. He had two matches with Bruno at the Madison Square Garden. First one got stopped because Bruno was bleeding too badly. The second one, I believe, was a Sicilian stretcher match that Bruno won. So he got his push, and then he started falling further and further down the card. Now, normally, 
a heel like Stasiak would have an eight, nine, ten month run in the territory. Stan was a guy who never left. I will not literally never, but he was there until 1979. And like I said, you know, as you go further and further down the card, you know, you get stuck uh, teaming with a jobber on TV against, you know, Ivan Putsky and Tito Santana. Yeah, there's a, uh, I, I was reminded of the song. There's a Texas singer songwriter named Hayes Carl, and he has a song titled Wish I Hadn't Stayed So Long. And sometimes we just overstay our welcome. And, you know, sometimes we stay in jobs too long or relationships too long or whatever it is. And he was just there too long. And, and that's, you know, what was going to happen. It, they couldn't push him in a main event anymore. He, he'd had all those shots. So, you know, he's teaming with Baron and Sucluna and it's time to go. Yeah, and it really was it to the, to the point where I thought it was a little bit of an embarrassment to the company itself and to the WWF championship because it's like okay, well, we've got this former uh heavyweight champion here, you know, in a six-man tag team match with Baron Mikel Cicluna and Moose Monroe. And it's like, you know, just send this guy to Portland or whatever you're going to do with him. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, you never know why people make life decisions, right? Maybe uh, I've, I've got a kid in the school system I yeah. need to get through the summer or, or whatever. You know, there, there's a reason I need this job to last so long. But yeah, it wasn't a good look for anybody. No, it, it definitely wasn't. And you're right. Maybe they all liked Stan Stasiak and maybe he had a kid in the school system, which probably isn't the smartest thing because you know what the pro wrestling business is like. But, you know, I mean, it. like I said, towards the end, I thought it became very much a negative for all parties involved. The very end, meaning like the beginning of 1979. All right, Steve, you can please pick a question for us. Okay, from Evan Ryan Tolly. Jim Cornette spoke of the Midnight Express, Bobby and Dennis talking to the WWF and getting the you will get your own dolls pitch. How would you see them being used in WWF back then? Uh, I do not see that the Midnight Express would have been pushed heavily in the WWF at that time. And, and they're my favorite tag team in the world, and I love them. They're my favorite tag team of all time. Yeah, Vince McMahon would not have looked at Dennis Condry and said, "That's money. I need to be. You know, I need this guy on top." And the other thing is that Vince hired people for two reasons: he hired people that he wanted to push, and he hired people that he knew would hurt the other company if they weren't in them. And I think if the Midnight Express would have gone to the WWF, you know, Cornette wouldn't have got his mic time. They wouldn't have had the time in the ring to get over that they had in WCW. And I think this would have been, I'm hurting my competition with this hire, not I'm helping my promotion. I think, you know what, what do I, what do I think? How do I think the midnight express would have been used in the WWF? I think they might have gotten the tag team titles. Like instead of the Hart Foundation, um, because Cornette was that talented and they were that good in the ring. No, Bobby and and uh, Dennis didn't have the WWF look, and the WWF wasn't about in ring performance, but they did have some spectacular moves. At the same time, being even being the WWF Tag Team Champions, you're still you're far from the main event. You're in the middle of the card, so. I, I mean, you know, what would have happened? I think, you know, they 
they could have been uh, just another tag team like the like the Killer Bees, or I think more likely they would have won the titles. But again, how how valuable is that? My my only complaint about Jim Cornette and his career as a manager is I think he could have been so much more. I think had he taken on a a singles wrestler along with the Midnight Express, he could have gotten that singles wrestler over as a main eventer right away case in point dick murdoch in 1988 yeah and and later uh, big boss man or whatever the gimmick was in wcw but uh yeah i mean Cornette could have represented a world champion easily i mean he was so good at what he did um so those are two completely different perspectives on what would happen in the midnight express and the wwf we'll never know yeah but, we'll, we'll never know and you know it's, it's boring if we have the same answer to every question right or yeah there you go. all right let me see oh this one danny jackson asks should AI, artificial intelligence, be used to restore key moments in wrestling history that we don't have clear enough videos of? Do you have an opinion here, Steve? Yeah, I'm, I'm too much of a purist for my own good about these things sometimes. If, if somebody's using AI to create something, then they're writing the narrative to what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like writing a movie about history. People view that movie as the actual history and they don't look at what the actual history is. And I think we're just tampering too much with history. You know, we don't have to know everything that's ever happened and we don't have to see everything that's ever happened. And I just don't think that there's a lot of value in doing that. I mean, your answer is my answer. I mean, I, you know, I know AI is going to be used for some great, great things, and it's also going to be used for some terrible things. And my lifetime conspiracy theory has been that Terminator 2 is going to happen. And 25 years ago, people were looking at me like I was crazy, and I don't think anyone is now. Like, the the computers one day are going to be like, hey, what do we need these people for? I don't think it's going to happen during any of our lifetimes, but I think it's going to happen. And Steve, do you remember like 25-ish years ago when virtual reality was going to be the next big thing? That never really took off, but do you remember when we all thought it was going to be the next big thing? Oh, yeah. It was, it was, like, it was like that one Christmas where everybody had to have those goggles, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and and then like six months later, nobody was talking about it. So it just came and went. It, it came and went. But I remember when it was here, I was like, okay, this is going to be just about video games. There, someone's going to have a program out there where you think you're going to be like a guy's going to think he's in bed with Marilyn Monroe, or if you want to get really weird, Cleopatra. And I was like, we don't need this in our society. Yes, I believe in freedom, but this is going to just, you know, uh, it's going to bring down humanity a little bit. And in a way, I'm glad it didn't happen, but I think it's going to. Right. And, and, you know, the people who are programming these things make the decisions on what our future is going to look like. And that's pretty scary. It is pretty scary. And once again, if you, if you haven't seen Terminator two, I recommend you see it. It's a really good movie. See Terminator one first, but I mean, it, it's worth looking at. It's over 30 years old and it's like very prophetic. Steve, please pick a question for us. Okay. Lance O'Donnell asks if Herb Abrams isn't Abrams, do you think the UWF could have made it and possibly passed WCW to become the number two promotion? So, you know, my thought on this is 
I, I, I thought about my father who loved watching golf on television and he would even watch the PGA senior tour, which was like the 70 year old guys out there golfing and making good money doing it. Uh, but it was pretty, you know, rough thing to watch for three hours on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> but the UWF was somewhat of the PGA senior tour for professional wrestling. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> It's the guys who had washed out at WWF and WCW. It was Ivan Koloff, Bob Orton Jr., Bob Backlund, Colonel De Beers. It, it was kind of, you know, the uh, Kiss reunion tour that they'll have in about five years from now. So it was just, eh, you know, they weren't building new stars. They weren't built for, you know, being a regular promotion to draw money. It just, you know, it was like an, it was like a intermittent indie show. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Herb Abrams uh, UWF. It was pretty rough. It was you. I wanted to like it because, you know, WCW was going in the wrong direction. You know, the WWF was what it was. And I wanted to like it just like I wanted to like Joe Pedicino's promotion. And I mean, I should even mention Pedicino's promotion was bad enough, but Abrams promotion, my goodness, it was awful. And you can, you could just tell like no other promotion on TV. These guys were just, you know, cashing checks and laughing at Herb, but to answer Lance's actual question, I mean, without Herb Abrams, like, you know, is there a way that they could have surpassed WCW? I mean, they were on Sports Channel. They were trying to get syndication. I think that's a pretty big leap. But then again, you know, WCW in like 93, 94, we're all just kind of waiting waiting for it to go out of business, quite frankly. And if they went out, then there would be a void. So I, I think that's the only way even a well-managed UWF could have worked. I, I I think ultimately there wasn't a way. Right. You would have had to have had some sort of huge money mark trying to prop that up for a couple of years. And, and uh, I, I'm not sure there's a big enough money mark in the world for Herb Abrams. <laughs> I, I, I'll say this, though. I do know or I knew a wrestling referee and he said Herb Abrams was one of the few guys who never uh, had a check bounce on him. He he, yeah. he said he always got paid. He always stayed in the hotel he was supposed to stay in. There were no stories about Herb Abrams under delivering what he promised this guy. So hey, you know, some someone said something nice about Herb Abrams on this show, on any show. Did he sniff the front and back of the check before he cashed it? That's what I. <laughs> That would have been a good idea. Maybe the contents on the check were uh, worth more than the amount on it. All right. Uh, let me see. John Ware, what is your favorite mainstream entrance song? What song best fit the wrestler? Even though if you watched the Georgia Championship Wrestling, you heard it too many times per episode. Uh, Leonard Skinner's Freebird for Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, and Buddy Roberts. Uh it was, you know, it was perfect. They they named their group after the song. They were all legitimate you know, Southern Leonard Skinner guys. Well, except for Buddy Roberts, but I'm sure he just fit in. Uh, it was almost like, you know, Michael Hayes had a vision of what his tag team, what he wanted his group to be, his tag team to be. And he lived it out through this song. So. I can't. I don't even know what number two is. I mean, Freebird by with the fabulous Freebirds. 
uh, my number one was uh, Freebird by the Fabulous Freebirds. <laughs> if, if you grew up in the South like I did, that song was just magical. And you hear those opening chords and, and it's just like spine tingling. And for the 1970s, if you live in Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, that part of the world, Leonard Skinner was your Rolling Stones if you were a teenager in the 70s. And so, I mean, it was just the perfect time. It was it, everything that presentation was perfect. And, and my second one is, is the modern, it's CM Punk's cult of personality. It's, you know, a, a legitimate mainstream rock and roll song, which, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, you were hearing music for years that was produced for a particular wrestler. And then, you know, all the drama that's surrounded CM Punk for the past few years. So when he walks into an arena and you hear that song, it's just, it's a jolt. It's exciting. So that, those are my two. I mean, I remember when he debuted for AEW, uh, the music started playing. The rumors were out there, but who really knows? And the music started playing, and I, you see people in the audience, like, literally crying. And I guess if that's a really good pick for the number two song if it gets that reaction. All right, Steve, your turn to pick. What do you got? Uh, let's go. Is it is Jamie Ward? Jamie? It's it's uh, Jamie. I've known Jamie since the eighties. Like I know him personally. Like I've been at his house. All right. So this this one might be a little bit of a controversial one for the uh, the I'll world. No right controversy now. on this podcast. Pick another one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> How does the industry change if Dave Meltzer never starts the Wrestling Observer and just continues to cover soccer? So you know, the first thing, if he just continues to cover soccer the world would have a lot more run-on sentences about me and Ham. <laughs> so that's the first thing that we know. We know that for sure. Uh, and, and I mean, I love the Wrestling Observer. I really do. I think Dave does a great job with history. I think he does a great job of saying, here's what's going on with current products. But I don't know that he's really impacted how wrestling has become. I mean, he, he's not managing talent rosters. He's not booking pay-per-views. He's not negotiating television deals. You know, do, are, is there a segment of the wrestling world that takes his opinion very seriously? Yes, there is. But I just don't know that, you know, and maybe you could argue as the wrestling industry or fan base has gotten smaller, his his influence has gotten bigger. But it's it's just really hard for me to quantify that. Now, this, you know, of course, this isn't a, a smack at Dave Meltzer. I, I don't think the industry would have changed except on a small scale because when the internet became a big thing in the mid-90s, and yes, kids, there was such a, th- a, a thing as a pre-internet age, when people finally started getting on the internet uh, in big numbers, you know, back in the Prodigy and AOL days, um, wrestling, I, I think the two are connected. Wrestling uh, made a major, major comeback, and I think the two of those things are connected. And I think, you know, now you have access to, oh, there's this newsletter out there that I can find out more about wrestling. And that makes you a bigger fan when you have access to something like that. It's like college football. I am a way bigger college football fan now than I was in the 80s. Why? Because I can watch it. There was like two games on a week in the 80s, and you had to wait until uh, Monday morning to see the uh, scores from Saturday night. 
So now I'm a way bigger fan because I have more access, and I think Dave created more fans. Which brings me to my next question from Tommy Troutman. Do you think Dave Meltzer's coverage of AEW has hurt his reputation or legacy with, quote, smart fans, unquote? Tommy, thanks for the question, and I think it, I think the only people who are on Dave's case about you know his coverage of, of AEW are the ones who simply do not read his product. I, I think Dave is has always been very fair, very balanced with his coverage of AEW. Now, if you want to say that, well, he praises AEW, sure he does. He also used to praise the hell out of All Japan, New Japan, Crockett, etc. He is both a journalist and a fan, and of course he's going to cover the stuff that he enjoys you know, with that overview. And he, he did the same thing in the 80s with the WWF versus the NWA, I mean, those same fans are like, wow, he must have been on JCP's payroll because look at the positive coverage he's getting, they're getting versus the WWF. No, Dave just felt that JCP had a a better product, and I I wholeheartedly agree with him. Yeah, I I, I've kind of got two opinions of this. I I mean, if I I think that yeah, he has been critical at AEW at some points. But there's also been times when he's he's kind of taken legitimate points and, and and it doesn't seem like he'll even consider them. But that seems to be much more like on the radio or podcast he does. It's it's really not part of what the wrestling observer is. So, you know, it's it's all in how you view the product. And if you don't view the product in his way, does that make him, you know, less um responsible as a journalist you know i don't know it's 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 all opinion at the end of the day it is and like i said when we're talking about you know people claiming that you know tony is paying him off or or whatever and it's like stop and think about this how much would tony what's the number people how much would tony have to pay dave in order to get better coverage from the wrestling observer newsletter like what's the number think about that how much is that worth that, you know, one guy with a newsletter is going to change the, the, the way the river runs as far as the coverage of AEW? Like, what is that actually worth? Not very much, in my opinion. So either Tony is way overpaying for this for no apparent reason, or Dave is accepting a very small amount of money and flushing his integrity down the drain with it. And guess what? Dave does not need a small amount of money. He is all set financially good for him. Dave worked really hard back in the, in the day. In other words, no, I can't stay in this city and have fun with you guys for one more day because that would make the observer late. I'd been there. I've been to that party. So, you know, like I said, I'm nothing against Tommy, but you know, I, I just think the whole concept that, uh, Dave is getting paid. Tommy didn't even ask about this, but you know the whole idea that Dave's getting money from AEW is so incredibly dumb. I guess, although I guess maybe he was also getting money from JCP and Memphis and All Japan and New Japan. Stop and think, everybody. That, that's not how it works. 
it's, it is kind of funny that one of the most polarizing personalities in the world of wrestling today doesn't ever appear on a wrestling show. Who, you mean Dave? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, there's there's so much discussion about Dave. There's, you know, all these, you know, YouTube clips about Dave and and people have, you know, such passionate opinions about this guy. And, and all he does is write a news newsletter and share his opinions, right? Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I, I am a observer subscriber. I have been on and off since 1986, and I've I've never heard one of the podcasts, uh, despite them being available for, for to me at no charge. I, I mean, you know, I'm just not that interested in what's going on with WWF and AEW in 2023. Sorry, but I I can tell you firsthand, hand on my heart, Dave is one of the nicest people I've ever met. There you go. All right. Time for another question? Yes, it is your turn, sir. All right. Lawrence Miles, what's your favorite wrestling movie that is not a documentary? Uh, This is pretty easy for me being a Memphis wrestling fan. I got to go with Man on the Moon. Uh, You know, it documents Andy Kaufman's time in Memphis. Uh, Jerry Lawler's in it. Lance Russell's in it. So just in terms of nostalgia for me, uh, that's a film that I really enjoy. And, And I think the movie was pretty true to the spirit of Andy Kaufman. I think they did a pretty good job with it. You know, it's funny. You picked Man on the Moon, which I, I went to the theater and saw. I mean, my, I, I don't really, I guess, was I'm from Hollywood. Could I call that a documentary or, or call it not a documentary? I, I think it's more performance art than documentary. Yeah. All right. Because I went to, in 1991, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts just to see that movie. And I thought it was great. I thought it was, you know, incredible. And then uh, maybe a few months later, I got a a copy of it on tape somehow. And then as time goes on, of course, it's on Comedy Central nonstop. Um, But, you know, at one point that was like a rare find. And and I absolutely loved I'm from Hollywood. I thought it was phenomenal. Yes, it kind of made fun of wrestling a little bit, which, you know, in 1982, you know, I would have looked down on, but at the same time, it was, it was just a good time in Memphis. I enjoyed it. It it is interesting how things that were so rare and hard to find, you know, during our youth, now they're just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, no, I feel like I say this too much. I mean, I would have killed to see a, a Madison Square Garden show, WWF show in 1982. And now I've got about a hundred of them. I can just pick one and, and watch it whenever I want. All right. Nathaniel, Uselton, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, asked what happens if Steve Austin has to retire after the pile driver at SummerSlam 97? Who steps up and becomes the megastar? Would Mr. McMahon have ever become a thing? Let me start by saying I was watching SummerSlam 97 live, and that pile driver was scary. I mean, as soon as it happened, I was like, whoa, that was dangerous. And then Austin stopped moving and Owen basically stopped the match. And I was like, "Uh oh, something went really wrong here and something did go really wrong. I think if Austin had to retire after that show, it would have decimated the WWF. If you remember watching Steve, the WWF in 1997, you you either had Austin on the TV, or they were teasing Austin's next appearance. I mean, that's what a huge megastar he was. And if they lost him at that moment, 
I mean, it, it absolutely could have been catastrophic for the company. And by the way, he was not supposed to come back. He was told by his doctors, no, you're retired. And Steve was like, hey, there's just too much money to be made out there. Yeah. I mean, you look at who else was kind of at the top of the roster at that time. Uh, Bret Hart, The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels. I mean, all legitimate headline stars, but they'd all been there for a while. They weren't going to become crossover mainstream stars at that point in their career. And, you know, The Rock was going to do that in a few years. But would The Rock have done that if Steve Austin hadn't have been there? You know, so, yeah, I, I don't know what happens at that point. But but really, the Mr. McMahon thing was was really not tied into that particular issue. The Mr. McMahon character came after the the Montreal screw job yep. when he went on TV and he said, Brett screwed Brett and he ignored the time honored tradition. And he thought he would come out as a big baby face. And everybody said, wow, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> and so he just went with the heat and became the Mr. McMahon character. One of the greatest heel runs in the history of wrestling. It really was, and it was sad that they, they had it last way too long, and they tried to replicate it with Stephanie and with, uh, what's his name, Johnny Ace. What's his real name? Uh, I don't know. All right, it doesn't matter. The guy who was Johnny Ace. They tried to do it you know, without Vince, and it didn't work. Steve, have you seen Vince McMahon's uh, Memphis appearances from like 19, 1993, 1994-ish? Oh, yeah. Those are just absolutely wonderful. You can just see him sinking his teeth into finally getting to become a heel character on television. So, yeah, those are wonderful clips. They really are. And I I have to think that even if Montreal had never happened, Vince had it in his head that at some point he was going to bring that character to the WWF. It's just a theory, but I believe it. Well, I mean... Who, who's ever been a better heel? I mean, it was it was just perfect. I mean, he, it, I mean, it was a lot of Vince being Vince in a way. It was, so, you know, the old turn up your basic personality to ten, and that's what he was doing. And uh, for a long time, it, it it was fantastic. I mean, I remember before the turn started, he's in the ring making some announcement, and the fans are booing him, and he just stops and he goes, "Some respect, please." <laughs> <laughs> that was the greatest thing ever. Of course, it just turns up the volume. And it's like, you know, it, it, I was like, I was watching it. And I was like, they're not going to make Vince McMahon a bad guy, are they? They can't do that. No, yeah, they can do that. Ugh, one of the greatest manipulators of all time. To say the least, and everyone got the storyline. Everyone got the arrogant boss versus you know the rebel steve austin uh storyline everyone could relate it was great more than 25 years ago steve oh goodness all right ryan botwinick asks how would you have booked bret hart in wcw now here's where i think i'm gonna maybe piss a few people off Vince, and we were talking about this in the Facebook group, by the way, we were discussing this today. Vince McMahon, when he, in 1997, told Bret Hart that, you know, I'm going to breach your contract. I can't afford to pay you. You can, you should go to WCW. And first of all, that's not how a contract works. But anyway, he was basically telling Bret to get lost. And because Bret Hart no longer fit Vince McMahon's vision of what he wanted the World Wrestling Federation to be. 
I mean, that, that's just reality. And, and Brett was not going along with the comedy. He was not going along with uh, the kind of extreme booking that the WWF was doing. And it, he just didn't fit anymore. So I'm now I'm wondering, Steve, how would I have booked Bret Hart and WCW? Like, of course, I would have had Canadian tours, but like, would I have made him the top guy in that company? Because WCW is doing a lot of the crazy stuff that the WWF was doing and Bret no longer fit in. So. You know, I, I think there's this universe where people are like, you know, oh, he could have been a, a bigger star. He could have been there, Steve Austin. He could have been a bigger star than uh, Hogan or Goldberg. And I just don't believe that. I, I say this a lot about Bob Backlund. The wrestling business was going one way and he was going the other way in like 83, 84. That was Bret Hart in 1998, uh, 1997 and 1998. I'm sorry, but that's what I think. Yeah, you know. I mean, Hogan was making all the decisions basically in the company and Hogan had the creative control card. Hogan was not going to lose a belt to Bret Hart. So then you go, okay, is there value in putting him in main events against Hulk Hogan? Because what's going to happen? You know, you're either going to have him lose or you're going to have, you know, some sort of schmoz or something. And, you know, it's, it's, where does he fit in? You've got, you know, the, the four horsemen group, and then you've got the traditional NWA group. Do you try to make a third group? I mean, that's kind of unwieldy to have three stables in the company. So you're right. There, there was just no natural way for him to fit in that universe. Yeah, and you know, Hogan knew what he was doing. Nash knew what he was doing. They weren't going to book Bret Hart in a manner that he was going to pass them. That was just not going to happen. And yeah, you know, I you know, he was no longer a fit for WWF. And I wonder if Bret really, if there was a a place for him in WCW where it would have worked. It it felt like at I mean, in retrospect, like his best move would have been to just you know, you know. Do 20 weeks a year in Japan. Yeah, that, that would have been. May have been a blow to the ego, you know, when you're used to being on national television every week and you're not. But, you know, sometimes your ego has to take a backseat to your wallet. Yeah. And, you know, Brett, hey, I was always a Brett fan. And I'm not just saying that. Even when he first came to the WWF as a baby face in 1984, or I think it was early 1985. I, I apologize. Like, you know, there was something about him I really liked. And then out of nowhere, he, without a heel turn, just became part of the Hart Foundation managed by Jimmy Hart. And I was like, wow, this guy's cool. He's got, you know, charisma. I like him. And he went on to be one of the biggest stars in the sport. So good for Brett. Steve, I'll tell you what, I think we've got time for one more question from each of us. Okay. What is, this is Drew Davies, the lost member of the Kinks. <laughs> what, is, what is worse for a match in your opinion, a bad wrestler or a bad referee? Ne neither are great. Uh, if, if I had to choose, would I rather see Bronco Lubitsch as a referee or the Magnificent Zulu as a wrestler? I, I, I would probably choose the bad referee. Uh, what, what really bothered me as, as I got to be a smarter fan was I could tell when the ref buffs were coming and uh, you know, Jerry Calhoun had a ref bump every week. It seemed like in the mid South Coliseum. Oh yeah. And it got to the point where I'm like, Oh, he's positioning himself to, for the ref bump right now. <laughs> so now you can you know, figure that out without reading a sheet, right? Right. Right. I could just see where he was going to position himself in the ring. 
and you knew it was going to happen. So, you know, it's everything has to work together for the match to work properly. You know, uh, a bad referee can kill the drama in the match. Uh, nobody wants to see bad wrestler. Uh, but it's it's all a matter of everybody doing their job to make the match look good. Yeah, I would way rather see. I mean, that was a perfect analogy. I would rather see. You can have a good match with Bronco Lubitsch, and there have been. You know, we talked a little bit last week about how Gene Kaniski was a net negative in the match uh, with Ric Flair and Harley Race at Starcade 83. But I mean, you're not, you can have a good match with a bad referee case in point that Starcade match. You can't have one, like you said, with, with magnificent Zulu. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that he had such a great look too. And then the bell rang and it was like, everything just fell right apart. Right. You could you could steal a house for one week, but that was it. <laughs> All right. Jason Bug asked, what was the reaction stateside to Jumbo Ceruto's, Ceruta's almost three-month reign with the AWA title in 1984? I mean, my... I was taken aback by it. I didn't know a thing about Japanese wrestling other than a few names. When I say a few names, less than 10. And Saruto was one of them. I knew about him coming in. But I was absolutely shocked when I read in the magazine that he won the AWA title. And I knew it wasn't going to last long. Um, I mean, you know, even being a, a complete non-smart fan, I'm like, okay, this is going to be like Otto Vons. You know, it's just a question of when the title goes back to Bockwinkle. And it didn't. It went to Rick Martell. But, I mean, my reaction, like I said, was, you know, okay, who is this guy and why are they making him champion? And I say that not knowing anything about Saruta other than the name. I mean, he He's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but I didn't know that in 1984. Yeah, here's here's what I wrote. Made more sense than Otto Vons. <laughs> <laughs> that was my reaction. I mean, you know, the, the Japanese wrestling world, you know, was was legitimized so much in the United States. You know that we had, you know, major stars going over there for tours all the time. So it did make sense that a Japanese wrestler would win a major American title and and uh you know and it made sense that they wouldn't hold it for very long because it wasn't going to draw in the United States. So uh, yeah. No, I mean it's it's just a different game in the United States where it's about interviews, it's about personalities and then it's about what you can do in the ring unlike Japan. And I remember you know first getting turned on by Japanese wrestling in 1987 and learning about it and not always knowing the names right away, but being like, man, this is a really good product and it's way different than what we have here. Steve, I want to thank you for joining us once again, kind of last minute as the uh, host of Sick to, uh, the guest on Sick to Wrestling. Hey, I, I've, I've always wanted to be a relief pitcher. You work one or two innings and then you're off for a week. Yeah, you just hang out in the bullpen all day and then, you know. <laughs> yeah, you drink a few beers and then, you know, you, you throw a slider and then you go home. So what what's better than that? If anyone's wondering about uh, Steve Generelli, my schedule has changed for the month of December. We usually record during the day on Monday, and this month I can't do that. So hopefully we'll get Steve in here. Uh, we'll be able to record on a Sunday or something like that. But uh, he's going to be off probably for the next couple of weeks. So, but, you know, and like I said, it's, it's just a schedule th schedules thing. He'll be back. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum 
I want to thank all of you for listening. It is greatly appreciated. It really, truly means a lot to me. It keeps me going when someone's like, yeah, you know, this makes my weekend or I look forward to this on Friday. And I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does. I want to thank him for all of his flexibility as well. He's, he's fantastic. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.